As Jim said, we've had uh, several weeks, several months being able to go through 1 Corinthians, and that's been a great uh, joy and blessing. As we've gone through it, we've seen Paul very boldly confronting uh, the believers of, in Jesus who are part of this church. He's been confronting them on their immaturity, on the sin of division in the church, and he's about to, uh, in the latter part of the letter and middle part of the letter, get to some really heavy, deep subjects. He's going to confront them uh, regarding how they're looking at sexual immorality. He's going to confront them at the fact that some of them are taking each other to court, suing each other. Some of them come to the Lord's Supper and they're there just to get to the front of the line. They want to get there first. They want to consume. There's no care and love for each other. And Paul has been confronting this boldly. He's been making very, very clear, if it's not for the Holy Spirit working in your heart, you're not going to understand God. You're not going to love his truth. And you're not going to be able to love each other. It seems to me that here in chapter 4, he's kind of uh, bringing it to a point before he gets into more details, more specific applications. And so it's really, really important for us to understand this part of the letter because here he gets it. What's at the root of this immaturity? and divisiveness. What's at the root of the sinful struggles that they are having? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Would you stand together with me as I read from God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 6 and down through the end of the chapter. Before I read the scripture, let me pray for us again. Father, would you please help me now? Uh, give me the words that you want to communicate to me and to all of us. Uh, we're gathered here around your word because we want to hear you. So please work by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Uh, give us hearts that will love your truth and run after it, uh, no matter what the cost. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And God's people said, Amen. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want? Already you have become rich? Without us, you have become kings? And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of God. Uh, please be seated. <clears throat> Years ago, there was a country music song with a chorus. I, I, I resisted the urge to ask Todd and Clinton to play it and me sing it. Um, that would not go well. But there was a country music song by, uh, I think it was Mac Davis. And the chorus of that song went like this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be one heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Um, what's the underlying problem uh, for the church at Corinth? Uh, they're finding it hard to be humble because <laughs> they think they're perfect in every way. Uh, they're full of pride. And Paul is calling them to a, a posture of killing pride rather than exalting in it. <laughs> a posture of growing humility that's grounded in a right understanding of the gospel. This is a message that we need today as well. It's very easy to look around us. When I started preparing this message, it, uh, it was going to be preached the Sunday after uh, the first debate between the presidential candidates. And I won't say anything more about it than that. But there are examples all around us of pride. There's examples around us every day of pride. There's examples in our community of pride. But that's not what should cause us the greatest alarm. It's when there's evidence of pride amongst the body of Christ. That's far, far more attention-getting, far more alarming, because that's the place where it should never, ever be. When we understand the gospel, there's no room for pride, is there? No room for self-centeredness. And yet, those are the things that we so often wrestle with, we struggle with. Because there's something in our old sinful nature that, that longs to cry out, look at me, look at me. I'm the most important person. Paul says to the church at Corinth, and he says it to us too, if we want to destroy immaturity and divisions, if we want to do that, we must kill pride. We need to learn how to go to the back of the line. That's the posture that Paul takes. 
So how do we do that? What I want to look at with you this morning is, first of all, that the problem is, in fact, pride, and then how pride grows and how pride dies. Uh, Trust and pray this will be helpful uh, for all of us. I know it's been good for me and exposing of my own heart. First of all, the problem is pride. Uh, Let me remind you of verses 6 and 7 that Paul wrote for us. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. You may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Our culture defines pride as a good thing. If you go to the dictionary and um, look it up, it's uh, somewhere, uh, I mean, different dictionaries define it slightly differently, but basically they say it's that positive feeling you get when you achieve something special or when you're connected with someone who achieves something special. How many of you have made a game-winning touchdown pass? But we identify and take pride in, we feel associated with. It's also, uh, pride is, uh, is there when you have possessions or qualities that are admired. It's also defined as confidence and self-respect as expressed by members of a group, typically one that has been socially marginalized on the basis of their shared identity, culture, and experience. It's even used of people who identify with those in that group when they have not themselves experienced that. They take pride in someone else who's experienced those things that in one way or another are unique or special, even if the things are bad and hard. It's that sense of wanting to be recognized, that sense of wanting to be first. But you know, the problem with all those definitions doesn't say anything about what the Bible says about pride. What the Bible teaches us about pride is that longing, that desire to think of yourself as superior to others, to think of your concerns as more important than anybody else's. And that's the thing that is deeply rooted in all of our hearts, that ugly, selfish desire. It says, I'm the most important person in the world. And everything should revolve around me. We all have it to one degree or another. Really, the only only way to kill it is to be overwhelmed by looking at the one who truly is the most important person in all the world. The one who truly does stand at the center of the universe. No one more important than the Lord Jesus. So, Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, I want to help you make sure you understand how important it is not to go beyond what is written. In other words, Scripture. Don't go beyond Scripture. He says, I have reminded you of these things so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. Understand Scripture. Don't go past Scripture so that you will not think that you are better or more important than anyone else. The way he puts the warning in verse 7 is when he asks these rhetorical questions. Who sees anything different in you? Uh, The word for different there refers not only to making distinctions between, but to do so in a way to make yourself superior. It's the whole purpose of it. It's not just looking at things to evaluate. Okay, is this a a good quality car for me? Um, No, it's, it's looking at things so that you can put yourself first. 
we might say, what makes you think you're better than anybody else? Uh, Paul goes on to say, what do you have that you didn't receive? Is there anything that you have, believers at Corinth, that, that truly you are totally responsible for? Paul has proclaimed to these folks the good news about Jesus, which is that he came to them in their sin to rescue them. It wasn't because they were better than anybody else. It wasn't because they were more worthy. The reason they have been gifted in the many ways in which they have been is simply because of Jesus' love for them and Jesus' gifting to them. So Paul says, why are you boasting in things as if you did not receive them? Why are you boasting as if you earned it? Uh, the sin, the root sin, the heart sin behind immaturity and divisions is pride. The followers of Jesus at Corinth have started to believe that their giftings are due to their abilities. It's due to their wisdom. It's due to their effort. They are of great value to each other. Uh, they, uh, they identify certain ones as even better, and they put them on a pedestal, and they identify with them. They think their accomplishments have elevated them to these levels of importance. And they think that makes them immune from serving each other. Paul says, why are you doing this? Why have you chosen to believe that you are worthy and that everybody else should serve you? Why is it so hard for you to be humble when you're perfect in every way? Uh, that's Paul's questioning to them. And if you think I'm being too hard on them, uh, just let me remind you of verse 8, where Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Already you are kings. He says, I wish that you were, because then we could share in your kingship. <laughs> Why is Paul so intense about this? Paul's so intense because sin... This sin, this sin of pride, causes so much damage. It hurts the one who has it, and it hurts everybody around them, too. Pride is a sin that brings incredible pain. There are so many examples in the Bible of pride, but let's just go all the way back to the beginning. We'll go back a little bit farther than the children's sermon to Cain and Abel's parents, to Adam and Eve. Remember when Eve was first approached by Satan in the garden? Um, all kinds of uh, expressions of sinful things there, but uh, pride, I think, was at the forefront. What was Satan's open, opening question? Did God really say? In that question, he is implying, does God really have authority over you to tell you what to do? God, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll, you'll be equal with him. Remember who... Satan is. Um, many Bible scholars uh, think there are a few passages in Scripture that uh, give us a little understanding of how Satan fell. Remember, he was created as an angel of light. What happened to him? Ezekiel 28, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Or Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. 
I will make myself like the Most High. Satan was full of pride. Think of the devastation, the damage, the horrible, awful, wicked consequences of that pride. Not only for Satan, but what about Adam and Eve? What about that part of our sinful nature that is there, that desire to be first? I don't think it's too extreme to say at times we desire to be God. We want our will to be done and not his. Pride is a terrible, awful, wicked sin. And it's very deceptive. It loves to disguise itself. James and Peter give us warnings about it. In James chapter 4, he warns against us thinking that we're superior to others. Uh, he quotes from the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He follows that by saying, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. See the connection there between pride and who is the father of pride? He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then James has some very strong words here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? James has strong words for the sin of pride, thinking that we are superior to others. Peter has strong words too. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Did you catch that connection? Pride and anxiety? What's the connection between being anxious and being prideful? It's that sense that your own concerns, your own circumstances are more important than anyone else's and you're going to give a whole lot of effort to make sure those circumstances are made right. Those cares are made right. And you're not entirely sure if God can do it. That's why Peter connects, humble yourself before God and cast all your anxiety on him. Before I move on to the second point of how pride grows, I just need to ask you, and I need to ask myself, even as I go through this again, it continues to pierce my heart do you see pride as a serious sin? That's the question. And that's what Paul is confronting in the Corinthian church. And as we continue and look at some of the ways that pride grows, um, there's going to be times when you want to defend it. There's times I want to defend it. <laughs> I'd say there were probably times the Corinthian believers wanted to defend it. So even as you think about what God says regarding pride, will you ask him? Will you ask him to expose it? Expose it in your own heart in whatever ways it's showing up because it's a deadly, harmful, wicked thing. 
So how does pride grow? Well, the verses that we have read uh, not only teach the the problem with the Corinthians as being one of pride, but it it also gives some hints as to how pride grows. And what I'd like to do is give a a short little list that another pastor and author has put together that I think is illustrated right here in these verses. Just four things about how pride grows. Pride grows when I begin to believe that I'm responsible for my own achievements. That's where it starts. We see that pretty clearly in the Corinthian church, don't we? As Paul asked the question, who made you different? What do you have that you didn't receive? Why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it, but you actually accomplished it? So pride starts to grow there. I'm responsible for my own achievements. But secondly, and very close to that, I truly am gifted and important. For me to have accomplished these things, you know, I, I must have done some good things. There, there must be some way in which I deserve this. Very closely behind that comes the attitude, you know what? Since I am responsible for my own achievements and I am pretty gifted and important, then other people ought to recognize that. Other people ought to see that in me. They should actually start giving me honor. Paul says, I'm a fool for Christ. You are wise in Christ. In other words, they wanted to be honored. Paul was willing to take the position of being humbled. Paul says he's weak. I'm strong. How to be recognized by others for that. And then it's just a very short trip from those thoughts to taking action to exalt myself. I want to make sure that others give me honor. And if they don't, there's going to be trouble. I'm, I'm going to make that happen because I deserve to be recognized. There's, uh, again, many illustrations in the Bible, but one uh, great one that's very relevant to us now. If you're in a community group studying the book of Esther, uh, I don't think you've gotten there yet, but you're going to get to a man by the name of Haman. Some of you will remember something about Haman already. Uh, Haman is a man in whom you see these very steps. Uh, We read in the scripture that he's one of the king's officials. He gets promoted to a position over the rest of the officials, and he is really congratulating himself. I'm so glad that the king recognized what a worthy man that I am. That's the kind of thing he says to his family. Apparently, um, everybody in the royal city uh, is willing to show him honor. They, They bow down to him when he comes to the king's court or to the the gate of the king's palace. Everybody in the city except for one man. His name's Mordecai. And it makes Haman furious. Why won't this guy bow down to me? He gets very angry about that. He finds out that uh, Mordecai is a Jew. He's so angry that he comes up with a plan for how to kill all the Jews because he knows there are various Jews throughout the city and throughout the kingdom. Well, Mordecai finds out about this plan, and he lets Esther know. You know, Esther wrestles with what she should do, but she eventually realizes she needs to tell the king. And so uh, her plan is to first invite the king and Haman to a special dinner. They will be her guests, and they'll be the only two guests. So when Haman gets word about this, oh, yeah, see? Not only does the king recognize me as his best official, but now the queen wants just me and the king to be her special guest for dinner. And so at that dinner, the only thing she requests, I want you to come back for a second dinner. 
Haman is on cloud nine now. Isn't this fantastic how I am so worthy in the sight of the king and the queen? He goes home. He boasts of all this to his wife and his friends. He looks for more honor to come his way, and he's more and more infuriated over Mordecai. He actually has gallows built because he wants to hang him. Well, in between those two dinners, there's a night when King Ahasuerus uh, can't sleep, and so he asks for his attendants to get the, the book of memorable deeds and bring it in and read to me about all the wonderful things that have happened in my kingdom. As they read that book, they uh, relate the story of a time when there was a plot against the king, and Mordecai had heard of it. Mordecai had informed the king's officials, and the king's life, excuse me, the king's life was spared. King Ahasuerus says, hmm, has anybody ever done anything to recognize Mordecai for what he did? And at that very moment, it's early in the morning now, Haman comes in. He wanted to be at the court early so that he could specifically ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows. So Haman comes in and the king looks at him and says, Haman, what should the king do for the man that he wants to honor? And Haman, the Bible tells us, in his mind, he's thinking, hmm, who else could the king be thinking of but me? Hmm, well, king, here's what I would do. Uh, dress this man that you want to honor in your royal robes, put him on your royal horse, and have your best official lead him through the city, declaring to everyone, this is how the one who the king delights to honor will be treated. The king says, that's a great idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Haman, talk about furious. <laughs> very, very furious. He does the deed. He goes home, grumbles, complains, whines, fusses at his family. And the king's attendants show up at the door and say, time for that second dinner. <laughs> he goes to dinner. And at that dinner, Queen Esther reveals, King, there's a plot against a certain people group in your kingdom, a plot against the Jews, and you need to know I'm a Jew. She had not revealed that to him before. When, he, when the king finds out he's furious, and Esther says, oh, by the way, here's the guy responsible for it. King's so furious, he gets up and starts stomping around. Haman is so panicked that he falls at the queen's feet and is pleading with her for his life. The king turns around and sees Haman doing that and says, oh, it's not enough that you want to kill her. Now you're going to attack her right in front of me? Kill him. The king's attendants say, okay, king, uh, by the way, there's some gallows at Haman's house that he built for Mordecai. The king says, good, use those. So Haman is put to death. Mordecai is promoted. The Jews are rescued. In some ways, it is a humorous story. But that's not my point in sharing it. I want you to see the progression of pride. I want you to see how easily you and I could be Haman. I'm worthy of honor. I am responsible for my own success. Others should honor me. If they don't, I'm going to try to make them honor me. Sometimes we do that through belittling and shame. 
sometimes through physical harm and abuse. Sometimes it's very outward, sometimes it's very, very inward. There are even times when we do this by being very, very quiet and pouting. And what's going on in our hearts is why has no one recognized how valuable and important I am? See, pride shows up in a lot of different ways. It's always deadly, always harmful, always wicked. It hurts the one who has it. And it hurts the people around them too. That's how pride grows. There are multiple, multiple examples in the scripture for how to know when pride is going on in your heart. Um, I don't have enough time <laughs> to go over those with you now. Uh, let me point out, well, no. If you want to talk further, talk further. I'd be glad to do that. There's a lot of scripture that points out the various ways that pride shows up. But I want to challenge you this morning to be willing to ask yourself and even ask your friends, ask your family. Most of all, ask God. Father, Father in heaven who knows my heart, is there any pride in me? Is there anything in me that thinks I'm better than someone else? Is there anything in me that thinks that my concerns, my circumstances are more important than anybody else's? Father, is there any wicked way in me? Paul is shining a spotlight on our hearts. He's doing that to the believers at Corinth, and he's telling them the, the problem behind the problems is the pride in your heart. Well, if that's how pride grows, how do you kill it? If it's so nasty, what do you do about it? Well, pride can only die when it's exposed and compared to the one who is worthy of our worship. And really, when you think about pride, it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? If pride is self-worship, then the best remedy is correct worship, the one who is worthy of worship, and that is our Lord Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Again, I think that's why Paul says in these verses, I don't want you to go beyond what's written. He's calling the Corinthian believers back to the Scripture, and he's calling us to that too. He's saying, don't forget or neglect what you have learned from Scripture about who Jesus is, about what Jesus came to do, about why Jesus did it. But if it's hinted in verse 6, it's really explicit in verses 9 through 13. Let's look at those again quickly. This is where Paul describes the way he views himself. Remember, he says, we apostles are at the back of the line. Uh, we know what it means to get to the back of the line, don't we? <laughs> it's, it's the opposite of wanting to be first. It's the opposite of wanting to exalt ourselves. He says, we apostles are at the back of the line, and that's where we've been put. That's where God has put us. We're like men sentenced to death, spectacle to the world, spectacle to angels, spectacle to men. We are fools, you are wise, we are weak, but you are strong. You have honor, we are held in disrepute. Right up to this very moment, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, and we labor with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We're the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Paul wasn't exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. This is what he truly, really experienced. It's what he even actually rejoiced in. Being able to suffer for Jesus in that way, being able to live in such a way that Jesus was exalted and not Paul. Remember who it is that's writing these words. What was Paul before his conversion? He was Saul, a proud man, a greatly feared man, a man who had impeccable knowledge of Scripture, impeccable qualifications for leadership. He was recognized by the Jewish leaders as a leader. And he was so zealous that he was willing to take on this new group of, of people who were declaring that the Messiah had come, that the Messiah had died and risen again. He, he was so zealous for what he understood God's word to say that he said, I'll get at the front of the line and I'll put this movement down. And that's what he sought to do. But when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he was humbled, wasn't he? Struck down, not just figuratively, but literally. He moved from his wrong understanding of the word of God when he was confronted with the God of the word, the Lord Jesus. And he couldn't remain standing. His life would never be the same after that. This man whom others had feared uh, now became, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, a walking dead man. <laughs> Beaten, stoned, ridiculed, mocked, betrayed. Why did he do all that? Because he was following in the steps of his Savior. Jesus faced all those things and far worse so that he could save a wretch like Paul. <laughs> and a wretch like me, and a wretch like you. We needed a Savior who would go through all of that indescribable suffering for us. When Paul saw Jesus as he truly is, it humbled him, and it killed his pride, and it enabled him to endure suffering for the sake of the one who loved him and gave himself for him. Paul was glad to suffer for Jesus. We're no different. Uh, nothing will kill our pride like looking at Jesus. Nothing will strip away all those areas where we think we have some qualification. <laughs> nothing will strip that away like looking at Jesus, seeing him in all of his perfections. But not only seeing all of his perfections, It'll also strip away from us that felt need that somehow, some way, we need to deserve being found worthy. We need to earn God's favor. That need is stripped away, too, when we see Jesus as he is. We're not only not qualified, but we don't need to be qualified because Jesus is the one who qualifies us. When we see him as he truly is, we're confronted with the fact that his love for us flows from who he is, not who we are. And I would submit to you that the Corinthian believers had forgotten that. They'd forgotten that the reason they had experienced the love of God was because it flowed from God to them. And so there was pride, there was immaturity, there were divisions. Only looking at Jesus will really address the root issues of our heart 
and put pride to death. I want you to notice Paul is very clear. I, I don't bring these things up to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you. He says that explicitly. It's right there in verse 14. I'm, I'm admonishing you because you are my beloved children. Even in the admonishment, Paul's not elevating himself. He's intense, but he's not unkind. It's not without love. His motivation is that of a father to his children. In the gospel, these folks are his children. But he doesn't take pride in that even. He doesn't boast in that. He mentions it only to signify his great love for them, that he recognizes it as a gift and a privilege, and he wants them to experience that same joy. Joy that comes not from exalting yourself, not even from exalting others, but joy that comes from exalting Jesus and going to the back of the line. This is how Paul tells us that pride can be killed. In 2 Corinthians, he puts it this way, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's all about elevating Christ. And that fits with what Paul goes on to say, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy. He'll remind you of my ways in Christ that I teach in all the churches. So Paul is saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Christ is the one to be exalted, not me, not any of you. Exalt Jesus. Jesus, who is kind and gentle. Jesus, who is meek and lowly. But that meekness and that lowliness comes from a place of strength and confidence. Because Jesus knew who he was before his father. And so in all of his glory, and all of his majesty, he didn't claim any honor for himself. There was not a place for pride in Jesus' heart. Paul seeks to reflect that very same thing, and Paul has learned that from Jesus. So, how do you finish up? Um, there's so much here. I, I kind of felt like a, uh, I heard about a pastor one time out in the Midwest who served a little country church, and he went there one Sunday morning, and only one old farmer showed up. There was just one guy there. And the pastor said to him, well, I don't know what to do. You're the only one here. And the farmer said, well, preacher, if I go out to feed my cows and there's only one there, I still go ahead and feed them. So the preacher said, great. So he proceeded to preach, and he was on fire and full, and he preached a long, long message. So at the end, he asked the farmer, well, what'd you think? And the farmer said, well, preacher, if I go out to feed my cows and only one cow shows up, I'll feed him, but I probably won't feed him the whole truckload of hay. <laughs> um, I felt a little bit like there's a whole truckload of hay here in this passage. I don't want to feed you the whole truck, but I do want to feed you enough to think, enough to examine your own heart. Because again, pride shows up in so many different ways, sometimes very outward, sometimes very inward. Sometimes pride disguises itself in ways that would appear to be good, and they're not. 
I know in my life I've done things for other people to be thought well of. That's pride. And it's wicked. When I do things for other people, it should be merely for the reason of exalting Jesus and because of what Jesus has done for me. And that's Paul's point here. But do notice at the end, I I would be remiss if I didn't uh, conclude the way Paul does. Paul says, uh, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? Now, why would Paul say that? It almost seems like a, wait a minute, (laughs) what are you talking about? Paul concludes that way because, again, he's determined to follow Jesus. Jesus, while he loves us and is incredibly tender and patient and kind with us, Jesus does not hold back from when we need strong words. Jesus does not hold back from the mission which his father sent him on, which was to rescue us and change us and make us more like him. So even if examining the topic of pride is hard for you, even if it brings up things that you would rather not find in your heart, please don't think that it's because I'm being mean or Paul's being mean or that Jesus is being mean. Jesus loves you. And if you belong to him, he is absolutely relentless in wanting to make you more and more like himself. So receive Jesus' instructions and admonition and pleading to each of us. I believe Jesus is is asking us, what do you think about yourself? And what do you think about me? Where's your place in line? Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. We're thankful for your word. And we pray, Father, that you would use it to challenge our hearts. Uh, You alone know the true condition of each of our hearts this morning. Um, Father, with Jeremiah, we have to say our Our hearts are deceitful. We don't even know our own hearts well. With Paul, we we want to be able to say, I don't know of anything against myself, but that doesn't make me innocent. You know our hearts. So, Father, would you apply to our hearts what we need? And as you do, Father, would you remind us that Jesus is the one who paid for our sin, for every bit of it. Would you remind us that there is not anything left for us to pay? Would you remind us that in Jesus we are loved and accepted? Would you remind us how important it is to rest in that even as we recognize our sin and ask for forgiveness. Father, may we never think, well, we often do think, so would you please correct us when we think that we have to get better, that we need to be more consistent 
Um, we need to be more worthy before we ask for forgiveness and for help. Would you humble our hearts, Father? Would you kill pride in us? Would you help us to exalt our Lord Jesus? We ask uh, these things in his great name. And God's people said, amen.